Hello everyone, welcome once again to A Reason for Hope. So glad that you're joining us and have tuned in for this hour-long live broadcast, which is for the most part about your questions on the Bible. We also give you some updates on things going on in the world, prophecy updates and the like. Of course, lots going on of interest at the moment in Israel and the Middle East. Um, but also you can send in your Bible questions uh, through multiple online platforms. I'll go over those in just a moment. Uh, any question you have on the Bible, any sincere question that's on your heart, maybe you've read a verse or passage of scripture, you're a little confused of what it means or how to apply it to your life. And um, speaking of your life, maybe you're going through something and you'd like a biblical perspective, you're trying to make a decision or go in a certain direction, you'd like to know what the Bible says about that. It could be something like that, or maybe just Christianity in general, maybe even other worldviews and religions as they relate to Christianity and the Bible. Any, as I say, any honest, sincere question you have, you're more than welcome to send those in. As long as you know, we're gonna use the Bible to find the answers uh, we're all about. Giving you and giving us uh, the reason, a reason for hope, which of course we find in God, we find in his word, and we certainly need that now more than ever in these days. So with us today, we have some wonderful guests, Pastor Scott Richards, who's a senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, where we're broadcasting Very same. from. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> how you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Good, you're sporting the very Calvary Chapel um, that's right. Aloha shirt over there. It's kind that's of right. Thing. When did that become a thing? Back in the day, like the Aloha shirt? It's kind of a Calvary Chapel well, pastor thing. Well, huh? I think it kind of went back to the fact that uh, Pastor Chuck had an affinity for surfing. Okay. And uh, he would often show up at conferences dressed accordingly. Yeah. I think that goes all the way back to the 70s. And, right. And uh, just sort of became... Uh, De rigueur, if you the will, thing, yeah. <laughs> to, uh, and I always loved Aloha shirts. So yeah. uh, any uh, reason to wear them, I'm I'm all over <laughs> Absolutely, it. Absolutely, so. yeah. But it's and certainly kind of become a bit of a uniform for that, that way. Calvary I can Chapel. fantasize about feeling like a sea breeze while I'm here in Tucson. <laughs> That's right. Let's yeah. open a window or something yeah. and see yeah. what we can do. But yeah. Also with us, Pastor Sean Richards. How are you doing today? Good to see you. Developing thick skin in the annals of the internet. <laughs> That's a good place don't, to do that. Don't we all? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. My goodness. Yeah, Develop it's, it's, it, need it. Who knows? It's kind of a sad new thing in our culture where, you know, trolls and all these new terms, people that just can be as mean as they like because they're hiding behind a screen. It's a, a new cultural thing that's very sad. Yeah. I don't mind mean just think through your insult for a second. <laughs> the insult is insulting. <laughs> At least make it clever, yeah. is that what you're saying, yeah. Well, uh, I think uh, if uh, World Wars One and Two, and Vietnam and such did not put an end to all of this, I think the internet has completely driven a uh, stake through the heart of the old uh, uh, Bon Mott that uh, deep inside people are basically good. Right, yeah. <laughs> no, deep absolutely. inside people are not. <laughs> absolutely, that's absolutely true, yes. You heard it here first. Yeah, <laughs> we all know that to be true. Well, um, once again, as I mentioned, Reason of Hope is a live broadcast. We are live with you on multiple platforms. I'll go through those just so you know your options here. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. here in Tucson, Arizona, Mountain Standard Time. And it's an outreach of Calvary Christian fellowship here in Tucson. So if you're in the Tucson area and you've been looking for somewhere to, to worship and uh, get in the word, you're of course more than welcome to come and join us. We're near Prince and I-10 on the west side of the freeway, just a, a, a block north from the um, exit there at Prince and I-10. Pretty easy to find in that business park right there. And uh, we have services on Sunday and Wednesday evening. We have a service tonight. We stream those live as well, so you can check those out on these same channels. 
But uh, calvarychristianfellowship.com is our website. You can find more information there. We have lots of events going on and Bible studies, support groups, all kinds of stuff. So have a little click around at your leisure. But if you go to that watch live tab, we are streaming live to that page, or you can type in ccftucson.online.church straight into your browser, and that will take you to the same place. We're live right now, so you'll see the video. You can sign in with a username, and there's a chat function that I can, uh, I'll be right there interacting with you if you'd like to send a question in during our show um, here. So we um, yep, stream live, like I say, our services as well to that same page. When we're offline, you'll see a schedule of upcoming events and a countdown so you can uh, join us for the next show. We're on Facebook as well, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson on Facebook or facebook.com slash CCF uh, Tucson. We're live there as well. You can send in uh, your question in the chat function that's attached to the video and I will be checking that as well. Facebook.com slash CCF Tucson or Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Don't forget to like and share. We'd appreciate that um, just to reach out with this ministry as far as the Lord will allow us to. Uh, we have an app for your mobile device as well. If you look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson in your app store, you can download and watch us on your cell phone or mobile device. And then on Roku, we have a channel as well and on Apple TV. So add us in your channel store, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and you can watch us on your big screen. We're live on YouTube as well. A Reason for Hope is the channel name on YouTube. Again, we'd appreciate it if you like and subscribe and all that good stuff and send in your question through that method. If you're joining us on YouTube, that live tab is very handy for you. Anytime we've been live, it archives there for you automatically. So if you missed the show or there was a question we covered and you want to recap the information or anything like that, right there, the live tab on A Reason for Hope on YouTube. Pastor Scott is on Twitter and I'm sure it is Twittering like a overfilled aviary uh, right now, I'm sure with everything going on, but uh, Scott R4H, Scott letter R number four, letter h uh, scott richards on uh, twitter you can follow along with him as well and then on rumble we're not live but we post video content so if you're using the rumble platform a reason for hope bible q a and then our email address uh, questions for hope at gmail.com questions for hope spelled out at gmail.com you can send us your question there as well we get to those on the show as well we're also on the radio reach radio and um, some other radio affiliates i believe if you're joining us we're glad that you are drive safely if you're on your drive time here in tucson or anywhere else uh, but keep in mind that you're listening to the last show that we did pre-recorded we're not live on the radio with you but questions for hope at gmail.com you can email us there when it's safe to do so and we'll get to that question on our next show so with all that being said it's good to know different platforms so you can jump around in case there is any technical issues or if you're someone that's boycotting um, social media calvarychristianfellowship.com is a great home base for you there but or maybe even fasting those interactions for a while <clears throat> yep that's right sometimes we do that sometimes it's healthy to do so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so but don't fast our website no reason to do that it's perfectly healthy yes uh, yes well why don't we pray before we go any further as we like to do invite the lord in sean would you like to pray today you look like you're ready to pray I do look it. <laughs> All right, Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. We want to invite you to be here as well, not just to share your word, but receive it, to desire your voice, to desire fellowship with your people, and to see that your spirit equips us for every good work, whether it's in being a participant in the simple things or in major steps in our walks with you. Allow us to have the kind of attitude that sees you as our goal and treasure. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Mm. Amen. 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 Well, Scott, you mentioned before the show you've been in touch with 
Ronnie Simone. Can yes. You tell us who that is and yeah. what did he say? Yeah. Well, uh, Ronnie uh, has been our tour guide uh, in Israel. He is a retired uh, colonel in the IDF, uh, as well as uh, the author of several books on uh, the history of Israel. Uh, really, an amazing uh, guy. Uh, <laughs> Some of the some of the stories that he has shared, I cannot uh, pass along because uh, they were shared in confidence. But suffice mm. to say, when we were going to cross into the country of Jordan to go see the city of Petra, I asked him why he wasn't going with us. And he said, well, uh, there were some things that happened in Jordan that make me not particularly welcome there. So uh, yeah, the right. official nature. So uh, Ronnie definitely knows the lay of the land. We've had him out to, to the church a couple of different times uh, to do uh, his... Uh, uh, bring Israel to you uh, tour, which has just really been an amazing thing. What he does is he shows you the different sites and tells you uh, everything you'd probably uh, want to know about these sites if you were on an actual tour of Israel. He also uh, can give just an amazing historical overview of uh, Israel's history, uh, even leading up to the current time. So uh, as far as a source of uh, information on all things pertaining to Israel, uh, you really can't do much better uh, than Ronnie Simone. Uh, I got in touch with him uh, a couple of days uh, ago. We've been going back and forth about uh, the possibility of him coming out and uh, doing another one of his seminars, bringing us up to speed about what's going on in Israel. And it looks like uh, we are going to be having him out here on uh, the 19th and the 20th of January. Wow. That's what he's going to be coming out. And we're really excited uh, about having him here uh, obviously uh, in light of current events and uh, obviously in light of the fact that uh, boy as a an expert on israel he really knows his stuff mm. uh, anybody who's gone to one of these seminars will tell you the same yep so uh anyway i i sent him a line saying hey ronnie uh we'd really love to have you here let us know what dates work for you we'll work on the arrangements if not too much trouble could you give me your analysis on the situation in israel i'd love to include your comments on a reason for hope podcast so I fired off to him five different comments, and uh, I'll pass along his answers. My first question was, number one, how much pressure can Israel resist from the United States in terms of a ceasefire? It seems like uh, Netanyahu told Anthony Blinken, our Secretary of State, to go fly a kite when he proposed a ceasefire. Uh, Ronnie responded by saying, Israel is willing to consider a short humanitarian break and to continue sending food into the safety zone. No ceasefire. At the moment, the United States understands that a ceasefire will serve Hamas, so there's not much pressure uh, officially. Uh, these uh, humanitarian breaks we've seen uh, in the news today, apparently uh, Israel uh, created a, uh, a corridor of safety for people in the northern part of the Gaza Strip to migrate down to the south. Uh, we also saw videos sent along uh, by Amir Serfati of a group of individuals who were attempting to get past a Hamas checkpoint heading for the south. Uh, as they approached the checkpoint, one of the Hamas uh, individuals manning the site pulled out a rocket-propelled grenade launcher and destroyed the van, which uh, was just loaded with people. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can see that Hamas is definitely interested in keeping as many human shields as possible there, but uh, the good news was Israel was able to put together, uh, and uh, I wouldn't call it a ceasefire, but a, a cessation of uh, their operations that allowed, uh, from what I understand, an estimated 50,000 people from uh, northern Gaza to get to southern Gaza 
today. So uh, Ronnie's question uh, is, uh, is on point. Uh, there will be short humanitarian breaks, uh, continuation of sending food into the safety zone. That is in the south part of the Gaza Strip, mm. but uh, no ceasefire. Uh, the second question I asked him is, why has Hezbollah resisted a more direct and intense engagement with Israel in the north? Hassan Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, seemed to be humiliated and weak in his speech last week. He said, Nasrallah is indeed a proxy of Iran, but he is also a Lebanese, which is an interesting point. There is much pressure in Lebanon from the locals not to be involved. When they see what happens in Gaza, they understand that Lebanon may be in the same state, meaning total devastation. The fact that the U.S. is heavily invested in the area is no doubt deterring Iran from ordering Hezbollah to be fully involved. That may change. Israel has stated clearly that we will not tolerate any terror entity on our borders. That includes Hezbollah. According to UN Resolution 1701, Hezbollah's forces should be deployed north to the Litany River. We can live with that. If Hezbollah refuses, then we will have to force them even by a full-scale war. So uh, the Litany River, uh, essentially, for those of you uh, are uh, in final jeopardy on your geography skills uh, is a river that basically bisects the nation of Lebanon roughly around 75 to 100 miles north of the Israeli border. And so that would be enough of a clear-out zone, if you will, for Israel to be able to accept them not coming any closer uh, than that, uh, which is a very interesting detail. This is probably why uh, Hez uh, Hezbollah and Hassan Nasrallah uh, we're talking a big game. There's been the um, a, a occasional anti-tank uh, weapon uh, shot across the border. Israel responds by destroying some more Hezbollah emplacements that are on the south side of the Litany River. Uh, but uh, no major attack at this particular time. Uh, the third question I asked him is, what is the end game for Gaza after Hamas is routed out? Someone is going to have to administrate the territory, and Egypt and Jordan act like they want nothing to do with it. Will Israel have to go back in? Uh, Ronnie responded by saying, well, that's the big question. The obvious answer should be that the Palestinian Authority should take control. Mahmoud Abbas is 86 years old, and he may not be the leader to do that. There are several options for PLO members to stand up to the task. It could be an international tribunal with Saudi forces, United Arab Emirates forces, and European inspectors. Israel does not want to occupy Gaza. However, for a while, that means years, we will have to keep the right to monitor what happens in Gaza and intervene immediately whenever needed. Now, that was fascinating uh, because there was another uh, interview uh, that ran uh, earlier today, uh, an interview uh, that was uh, posted on the Epic Times news site with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. It says in an earlier hint of his vision of a post-war Gaza, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said that his country would assume the overall security of the war-torn enclave for an indefinite period to ensure its freedom from Hamas's terror. Gaza should be governed only by, quote, those who don't want to continue the way of Hamas. And such a government won't be able to stand without the backing of Israeli firepower, Mr. Netanyahu said on ABC News. I think Israel, for an indefinite period, will have the overall security responsibility because we've seen what happens when we don't have it. Uh, and he said, when we don't have that security responsibility, what we have is the eruption of Hamas terror on a scale that we could not imagine. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think uh, Ronnie 
is probably correct. There's going to have to be some kind of an international consortium that moves into uh, Gaza and administrates things mm -hmm. and uh, probably with some element of uh, Israeli Defense Force uh, military engagement behind them. Mm -hmm. uh, some people say, well, why couldn't the UN do this? Well, we've seen the crackerjack job that uh, the UN has done in enforcing the uh, distance between Hezbollah and Lebanon and Israel on its northern border. Basically, they sit by and watch while Hezbollah sets up missile emplacements and launches them. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, Israel would not accept uh, that uh, sort of an arrangement. They would probably have to be involved in some level or be right outside willing to go in on a moment's notice uh, to be able to uh, do that sort of thing. But a fascinating answer for sure uh, from Ronnie. Uh, the fourth question I asked, how is the horrific rise in anti-Semitism worldwide affecting people in Israel? He said, the rise of anti-Semitism is shocking. Governments in Western Europe are taking the Israeli side as well as Australia and others. How committed are these governments to protect Jewish assets and people in the world? It looks like the masses marching in the streets of London and Paris are not genuine locals, but immigrants in most cases. They are supported by some locals out of ignorance and hatred. It's a bigger problem for those countries than it is for the Jews. However, Jews from around the world are careful not to identify themselves as Jews. They won't speak Hebrew, uh, wear a skull cap, etc. Mm. So uh, I think uh, the, uh, the money quote there obviously is that uh, he finds this shocking. Uh, I think uh, most of us would find this shocking. If you follow our, uh, our uh, uh, Scott Richards uh, at uh, Scott R4H on Twitter. the X platform, yeah. or Twitter as it's known, uh, we keep you up to date on these things. One of the things that really uh, shocks and stuns me is apparently uh, they've identified uh, the individual who uh, brained a pro-Israeli protester over the head with a bullhorn at a uh, protest that was going on uh, on the uh, street corner of Thousand Oaks Boulevard and Westlake Boulevard in Westlake Village, where I used to live. Oh. Uh, and uh, there were pro-Israeli protesters, pro-Palestinian protesters. Turns out uh, the guy who hit uh, the, uh, the Jewish man, 69 years old, over the head with a bullhorn, knocked him flat. A uh, fellow died from uh, mm -hmm. bleed out in his brain the next day. Uh, mm -hmm. is a uh, teacher of computer science at Ventura Community College, not too far from there. Mm -hmm. uh, they've released his name. We're not going to mention his name, uh, not to give this guy any kind of propers or any kind of publicity yeah. whatsoever. The fascinating thing to me is, is that the Ventura County Sheriff's Office is probably trying to untangle uh, exactly what the intersectionalities and uh, politically correct move is in this set of circumstances because as of right now, this gentleman who lives in Moore Park, California is still uh, unarrested mm. after this fellow has died, essentially murdered yeah. by this individual uh, on the street. Lots of video, uh, no doubt about what happened. Yeah. Uh, just very, very sad stuff. Yeah. And uh, to think that that could happen so close to home, I mean, about yep. a mile and a half from where I used to live. Wow. Uh, just stunning, absolutely stunning to me. Yep. So, uh, you know, people say, well, you know, it's anti-Semitism. Uh, how does, you know, that really affect me? Well, you need to realize that uh, anti-Semitism isn't gonna stop with the anti-Semites. I give you a historical uh, vignette. 
uh, Heinrich Himmler, who was the author of The Final Solution, uh, The Extermination of the Jews in uh, World War II, had a Final Solution Part uh, Two uh, already put together. And that was the extermination of any Christians as the Nazis felt that Christianity was far too Jewish and uh, was a, an affront uh, to what they would consider the true destiny of the Aryan race, and that is the worship of ancient pagan uh, Aryan gods. Uh, so uh, what, what happened to the Jews was going to happen to the Christians and did happen to many Christians, uh, probably a lot fewer than should have been involved, who uh, risked their lives to protect and hide uh, Jews and stand against Hitler's uh, tyranny in World War II. So if you don't think that this thing has mission creep, as they call it, associated with it, uh, you're kidding yourself. Mm. Uh, you know, once uh, the job is done, quote unquote, with the Jews, I would say that Christians, especially based on what we know about Islam, would be next on the agenda. Uh, the next question that I asked uh, Ronnie was, how likely is it that other state actors, Russia, Syria, Iran, and even Jordan, get involved in this conflict? He said, fortunately, Russia is engaged in the Ukraine to such an extent that right now they are not a key player <clears throat> in the region. Neither is Syria. On Syrian soil, there are several militias, proxy of Iran, that are involved already. Their targets are usually American assets in Iraq and northern Syria. Iran will get involved more deeply when Hamas's end will be near. At least that was their official statement. Jordan and Egypt may make statements and take Hamas's side, but they will be the happiest ever when Hamas will be taken out. It looks like the American presence in the area, the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf is a powerful enough message and a warning. And we understand uh, the B-2 bombers that we spoke about on uh, our edition of A Reason for Hope on uh, Monday. Uh, have gone on another uh, significant uh, hey we're here uh, mm. mission over the area of Saudi Arabia getting up close north to the uh, Iranian border mm. so I think that's basically a message to the mad mullahs mm. uh, go ahead make my day mm. uh, if you really want to push this well we have the capabilities including nuclear capabilities uh, to bomb at the very least uh, your nuclear ambitions back to the Stone Age. Yeah. Uh, the uh, next question I asked him is, what is the best way for those of us who stand with Israel during this time to practically show our support? Mm. Uh, he said, as far as ways to support us in these challenging times, prayer, share with friends, family, and coworkers, uh, Israel as you know it. Uh, and those of you who have gone with a trip to Israel and know the Israeli people, and love the Israeli people, uh, love the Jewish people, uh, we simply need to uh, stand for that. I have not yet received them in the mail, but one thing we are going to be doing as a church is uh, we are going to be the, joining the uh, Stand Against Jewish Hatred campaign uh, that uh, issues uh, these uh, little blue squares. Uh, I saw mm. this advertised on the University of Arizona UCLA football game on uh, Saturday. And basically, uh, Robert Kraft, who's the owner of uh, the New England Patriots, put this together. And what shows up on your screen is this little tiny square. And they said this square represents 2.5% of the area on your TV screen. That is also the amount of Jewish people as a percentage in the United States. Mm. And then they show the rest of your TV screen taking up the fact that well over 56% of all hate crimes in the United States are conducted against this 2.5% uh, 
of Jewish wow. people. And so what they want people to do is they want people to wear these tiny blue squares. And if people ask you what the meaning of the blue square is, you can explain that mm -hmm. you stand with Israel, you stand against anti-Semitism, you stand against Jewish hatred. And so mm -hmm. uh, I was I was so moved by that. Yeah. Um, I ordered uh, several hundred of them. Oh. Uh, and uh, as soon as they arrive, we're going to be distributing them here yeah. at our church. That's great. Uh, I would encourage you to go to the website if you'd like to. They're, they're absolutely free. Um, yeah. You can just ask for them. Uh, they obviously will ask you for a donation if you want to help support their cause. But uh, no financial obligation and all of that. And I think it's good to be identifying uh, with the Jewish people. One of the saddest things, and this was a story that ran right before airtime, is that apparently the dreaded Wagner group, the uh, group of mercenaries that do Vladimir Putin's bidding, mm. uh, were nailed uh, contracting with a couple from Moldavia, believe it or not, Moldovia, mm. uh, who were living in France. They were going around painting uh, yellow Jewish stars on the homes of Jewish people. Mm -hmm. They were contracted by the Wagner Group and paid well to go out and do this, to stir up Jewish anti-Semitism. So, uh, you know, seeing these sort of things and individuals making these kind of statements against the Jewish people, yeah. we as believers in Jesus, because we owe the Jewish people an incredible debt of gratitude. If it right. wasn't for the Jewish people, we wouldn't have our Bible. If it wasn't for the Jewish people, we wouldn't have the agreement that God made with Abraham that yeah. culminated in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was born controversial statement a jew of the tribe of judah of all things and uh you know again we judah. we are uh indebted to the jewish people and we worship the jewish messiah right uh so you know standing with the jewish people to me it's a no-brainer and if you know jewish people uh, i would really highly recommend you just uh take a, a moment and tell them that you're praying for them and that you love them you don't have to get into a big you know highfalutin uh, you know, evangelistic full assault. Uh, one couple that Pam and I know, uh, you know, Pam was telling me today, you know, I communicated to them how much we love them. And if things start to get crazy and they felt like they needed support to call us at any time, mm -hmm. um, you know, this gentleman came up to my wife today and he said, you know, I'm not, he said, I don't know if I understand everything that your husband's been trying to tell me here, but the fact that you uh, two love us means the world to us and oh. started to cry oh so encourage somebody out there yeah you know there's there's so much uh hatred and so much darkness out there in fact on sunday uh we're going to be uh continuing on with our prophecy update series by doing a study called uh, the strong delusion out of second thessalonians chapter two and i think this irrational hatred of Jewish people is definitely a sign that the the not only the strong delusion but the mystery of lawlessness as the Apostle Paul describes it mm -hmm. in that passage are alive and kicking and doing uh, land office business as far as financial support uh, Ronnie suggests that uh, if you go online and check the Israeli consulate in LA they would give you the best reliable advice as uh, making some kind of financial contribution that is going to make uh, the best uh, possible difference. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we would tell you also to support uh, groups like the Joshua Fund. Go to mm -hmm. allisrael.com. Our good friend Joel Rosenberg not only shares the gospel, but does incredible humanitarian work, not only mm -hmm. with Jews, but Palestinians in the area. Uh, so, yeah. Wonderful. Yeah.
Well, great. Well, thank you for sharing that. Thank yeah. you, Ronnie. Yeah. For and so you mentioned he'll he's planning to come early next year. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, wow. January nineteenth. Yeah. Of date. Great. So, so we'll, mark it on your calendar, and we will give you more details as uh, we receive them. Absolutely. Which is coming up real quick. We're yeah. almost on Christmas. So <laughs> Can that's you believe great. it? <laughs> I know, no, I cannot. <laughs> I cannot believe that at all. Well, thank you. Um, thank you for that interview across the airwaves with Ronnie there. Um, so on to questions again. Send your questions in. We have some time left here on the show for your questions. Send them in whatever platform you're joining us on. If you have a question on the Bible or anything you just heard or anything, um, any sincere question you have, biblical related, please send them in. We have a question from Melissa. Uh, did Jesus drink wine in the New Testament days? What does the Bible say regarding your salvation if you drink alcohol i mean that's, that's pretty strong salvation but <laughs> i mean we can back it up and say you know yeah. what, what what's the famous line from uh, the anchorman well that accelerated quickly. <laughs> yes, it, it, yes yes but uh, yeah i mean sure is drinking a salvation issue or is it an issue for a christian at all should we drink should we not drink yeah um did jesus drink i mean yeah, that's I'll a good start with the first point did yeah. jesus drink the answer is yes just like any other first century hebrew when it came to how people were to basically not only make water palatable but potable they would mix in a little bit of wine in right. order to deal with all the squigglies and stuff and we see this later instructed by the apostle paul to timothy and saying no longer drink only water but a little wine for your frequent infirmities for paul the apostle to mention something that would cost him his salvation in the pastoral epistles would of course be a non-starter so when people say that it's anti-christian that's ridiculous when it comes to well, Jesus didn't drink wine. Once again, he came from that culture, but if you say there's no example, there's an indirect association where Jesus enabled people to drink wine. In the Gospel of John chapter 2, the first public miracle he performed, he turned water to wine at the wedding that he was invited to, and the um, host of the wedding, I guess would be his title, uh, said that the inferior wine is brought out later, but you uh, um, saved the best kind of wine. For now, now, if it was only grape juice, or if people were to read that into the text, or read out of it any semblance of alcohol or fermentation, it's done in spite of the text, not in light of it. That's not how you read anything, let alone scripture. The third example, and Jesus directly owns up to and demonstrates drinking wine on two occasions. First of all, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is accused of drinking and eating in contrast to the, um, well, what was it, uh, John the Baptist, I was going to say the yeah. apostle, I got no, the prefix was, backwards, yeah. uh, John the Baptist, where he said he didn't eat and drink, and you said he had a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and notice what kind of drink Jesus identifies himself as through their insults, look a glutton, in reference to the food, and a wine bibber. So he specifies wine as if it's a right. form of criticism towards him. Mm -hmm. And of course, Jesus doesn't consider it critical. There's also other instances where at the Last Supper, Jesus celebrating the Seder ceremony, introducing the act of communion, says, this is my blood taken for you, do this in remembrance of me. And the Apostle Paul notes in 1 Corinthians that it was the wine that he took. And you see the ceremony still being practiced today. So when it comes to the controversy around these things, well, Jesus never drank wine, that's false. Jesus directly condemned drinking wine, that's false. Uh, the scripture condemns all instances of any form of alcohol, that's false. The reason why this comes up is because like any other good thing, 
it is also very easy to abuse. And because people right. can have problems with drinking, they tend to, for, I guess, give them the benefit of the doubt. The emphasis on, well, it's better to err with good intentions, even deceive with good intentions, if the end justifies the means. The problem is we as Christians mm -hmm. don't play those games. If the Word of God is increased by my lie, why am I still judged as a sinner. So when it comes to our salvation, what is the terms and conditions of how to be saved? Is it teetotaling? No. <laughs> no. Yeah. And, you know, I think the only thing uh, that we have to keep in mind in all of this are, are two factors. Number one uh, is alcohol uh, something that is mastering us. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12 says, uh, food for the stomach and stomach for food. I will not be mastered by any. Uh, there are some people that have a proclivity towards uh, alcoholism. Uh, you know, one of the things that I tell people is, I do not believe that the Bible ever teaches total abstinence from drinking alcohol for all people. It definitely has some strong things to say about being drunk, right. I mean, Ephesians 5 and verse 18 says, be not drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but it be, instead be filled with the Spirit. Uh, we don't want to uh, allow, say, uh, drinking to put us in a place where, you know, our thinking isn't clear, uh, you know, where maybe we're being a bad witness to other people and things along this line. Uh, or very early on in my walk with God, the Lord laid on my heart just not to drink at all for a couple reasons. I tend to be a kind of a, I don't know, sort of a compulsive person. Uh, there were three generations, I think, that I could point to of alcoholics that were in my family. Mm. And I had just started to drink as a teenager. I really uh, kind of enjoyed it. Uh, but the Lord told me, you know, just give it up. You know, I stopped and thought, well, why do I drink? Well, it relaxes me. Well, now yep. I got the peace of God to relax me. Mm -hmm. Well, it makes me more social. Well, I've got the love of God that makes me like being around people and, and such, you know, it, it makes me feel better. Well, I've got the joy of the Lord now. So, you know, if I'm getting all these things in a sense from the Bible, why do I need to get them from a bottle? Yeah. And, uh, and so just as a safeguard for me, I just realized that it was easier for me to draw a line and just say, no, I'm not yeah. going to do it yeah. than to try to manage it. Now, I know other uh, very sincere Christians who don't have a problem with all of that. Mm -hmm. Doesn't impede them, uh, doesn't cause them to take on another personality, doesn't cause them uh, problems in the home, things along this line. Well, you know, if you can drink and be thankful for it, go for it. You know, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm not going to sit in judgment of it. But the other thing that comes into play uh, when you're in my situation as a pastor is this. I could be fully within my freedom as a believer to have a glass of wine with dinner. Go out to eat with my wife, have a glass of wine. Yep. I, I could do that. But uh, the, the funny thing is, you know, when you're in a leadership role in church, you're kind of on 24-7. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, the minute people close to us identify us as believers in Christ, they're watching us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the thought dawned on me, you know, well, I might have this freedom to drink and maybe I could manage it. I just don't even want to give it the shot, but maybe I could manage it. But maybe there's somebody in that restaurant who knows that I'm a pastor or that I'm a born-again Christian, and they've had a problem with alcoholism yeah. in the past. And they see me and they go, well, Pastor Scott's having a drink, why can't I? Yeah. Well, maybe that causes them to fall off the wagon, so to speak. 
and creates all these different problems. So rather than exercise that freedom, I also have the freedom to say no to this for a higher reason. That's being more concerned about others than I am about something that, well, quite frankly, because, you know, I think the last time I had an alcoholic beverage was like in college or something. I mean, a lot of water on the bridge (laughs) there. Uh, 15 years. Yeah, a a few. (laughs) But, uh, you know, why run the risk of this sort of thing for something that's just best out of my life? So that's my personal conviction on that subject. Um, Your mileage may vary. Just make sure that it's not affecting you, that you're not drinking to get drunk. Uh, you might say, well, uh, as far as I know, I'm not drunk. Well, ask people around you, you know, is your drinking altering <laughs> your personality? Is yeah. it making you into a different kind of a person? Is it bringing out some things that you don't want brought out? Uh, one of the things, you know, that I discovered about drinking before I gave it up entirely uh, was, was this. Uh, al- drinking a bunch of alcohol never made me smarter. It made <laughs> me think I was being smarter. Yep but uh, never made me smarter. Yeah. And I've discovered something in this life. I don't need any help being stupid, <laughs> making dumb decisions. So right. <laughs> why, why diminish my capacities on, per- on purpose? So, right, sure. Yeah. yeah. I Once, just think there's too many calories. Yeah, <laughs> that's, true, that's true as well. <laughs> Once again, I, I love it. A question, you know, we've talked about this before, where instead of looking at it religiously, you know, like is alcohol a salvation issue? Look at it. Why is it wise? Is it loving? Is it beneficial? You know, I, I love that. I love bringing it back to just our relationship with God and what's actually beneficial for us and to love other people around yeah. like you were sharing. So yeah. that's great. Thanks, Melissa, for that question. I hope that helps you out. Great, great question. In our culture, very common practice, obviously, to drink alcohol. So I hope that helps you. Um, here's an int- interesting question, interestingly worded too. What evidence is there against the existence of God? So basically, what are the common reasons people give against God. Yeah. Are there any? Yeah, I mean, oh, obviously. Well, there certainly are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the conversations continue because they still have their talking points. Um, when it comes to dealing with atheists, obviously it's identifying your audience. There's the agnostic who calls themselves an atheist. There's an atheist in principle, but not in passion. And then there's the anti-theist who's not the sort of person you could have any meaningful conversation with. The first kind of judge of character is not just the question, but the questioner. That'd be my first advice, because generally when I'm dealing with people, I like to be able to hold them to certain standards. When it comes to the atheist position, there isn't like any collective, you know, this is the gospel according to Richard Dawkins or whatever. So uh, we need to be able to judge people where they're at, and I don't mean judge like, oh, you're so judgmental. I mean, no, come to conclusions about how to meaningfully communicate. If you're dealing with an agnostic who calls themselves an atheist, the simple phrase of agnostic is going to have basically two talking points. Their reasons for rejecting God is either, it's just not relevant to me. Mm. I'm living my life. I'm content with what I'm going through. I've been through and where I'm ultimately headed. It's just not a thing I really need to deal with right now. The evidence for them is its irrelevance. And so the best way to respond to those kind of issues, if you have a follow-up on it, we can go into more detail, but give examples of why it is exactly relevant. Maybe the fact that as this world's getting crazier, we aren't all promised a tomorrow. 
even an atheist can acknowledge that. The second kind of argument you're going to hear from agnostic is more of a social issue. I just don't want to associate with those kinds of people. It's a social stigma against Christians rather than Christianity proper, because agnostics, again, in their neutral position aren't going to have direct examples because they don't really care. They're not going to extensively study things they don't care about, so that's going to be reflected. They'll either disassociate with the group or the concept. The best arguments, of course, against those is to understand whether you don't like the people or do. It's a matter of whether their claims are true. You'd right. say the same thing if atheism were true. I don't care if there's unpleasant atheists out there. You'd want me to be in line with reality. Yeah. So that, that's easy mode. That's the, the first kind of person that you can talk to and the kind of objections to be prepared for. Why is God relevant? Uh, for the run-of-the-mill atheist in principle rather than passion, there's generally five angles. And, and these will accumulate as we get more into the nitty-gritty. Uh, five angles that a traditional atheist will object to as far as Christianity, not because they've necessarily, some have, but they've necessarily thought these things through, but they've been handed them by people they trust as smart and intelligent and having thought through these things. Usually people like Matt Dillahunty from the Atheist Experience, the Cosmic Skeptic on YouTube, the uh, you know new atheists like Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, and uh, uh, what's his name, Anthony Flew, and others. They would put forward these kind of slogans. Mm -hmm. uh, first is the moral problem of evil, that if there is a God, an all-powerful, all-benevolent, all-good being, why would he allow people, first hint that this isn't as well thought through as it sounds, to do the sort of things that he wouldn't like? If I were God, second issue with this objection, then I would stop everyone from being able to do the sort of atrocities we see doing to each other, the October 6th attacks, for example. Mm -hmm. They would put forward the idea that since there is no God doing the things I expect of him towards me, that right. he hasn't put us in this sort of nerf world where any sort of means we would uh, use or accomplish to inflict harm on each other or the things that they don't emotionally like, third issue, that means that he isn't there. But the problem is your emotional perception of things that we do, not that he did, is a mark against his inexistence. So that would be something to look more into. And there are brighter minds than mine that have well, that's not hard, but uh, brighter minds than my own that have basically put forward a good breakdown philosophically, morally, and, you know, all the ins and outs of this, and even using atheist own positions against them in these sort of conversations. The second is like it, the problem of natural evil. It's not what evil people do, but just the evil things that happen. You don't have to have a terrorist to destroy a city with a bomb. You could have what's called an earthquake or a tornado or an outbreak of disease or something. Right. And so when people look at things like, for instance, a, a kid that hasn't necessarily done anything wrong, they were just born with um, trying to understand or remember the medical term for it, um, inert, innate, uh, latent. Uh, it's a form of bone cancer, basically, that appears very early on, and it's uh, inherited genetically. Uh, bone cancer, for those of you who don't know, not, not fun. <laughs> very, very difficult. And for doctors and for family members that see just this kid for no other crime than existing, having to go through just freakish agony because they yeah. were born, right. they look at that and wonder, 
if we were designed or if there was some God out there that could intervene in this, why isn't this among anything else? You look at the earthquake, you look at the tornado, why wasn't this stopped? And they would say, because I don't have enough information to say, not only would this be justified in the long term, and I'd, I'd completely agree, there is no reason to think a bad thing happens, how do I make it good? But to say, in light of all of that, the objection is the evidence of things that aren't God proves there aren't there isn't a God in the first place. Yeah. When something that goes against this all good beings nature are allowed to happen, they use that as an extension of everything, that there is no God out there at all. And this is a little bit more well thought through than the problem of moral evil, but it also makes the same faulty assumptions. First, it makes expectations of God that he never made. Secondly, it's under the assumption that we are still in a positive relationship with God where he was protecting us from these things. Now we've separated ourselves from him, i.e. fallen world. And of course, when it ties back into the problem of moral, moral evil, both make the same fundamental mistake in saying, I can dictate to God what he ought to do in this situation, given my limited information and especially my emotions. Notice the trend here. My emotional reaction to something bad means the inexistence of the thing I also associate that didn't necessarily cause that. It's it's a dumb argument, but it's very empathetic, to say the least. So when we are talking to atheists in passion, but or in principle, but not passion, those are the two most common. Third ones would be things like, well, the Bible's contradictory. You just have to ask them chapter and verse, where and when, mm-hmm. and it's usually going to be one of the same three mistakes over and over again. A transmission error, a fail to, failure to read the verse before, or after, or dismissing the genre of the passage. That deals with about 90% of the Bible contradictions they'll throw out to you, but it is a reasonable objection that if the book can't maintain its facts, then its revelation of God also shouldn't be respected. The problem is they can't substantiate it without being either dishonest or just not being informed. That's not, of course, a good objection. The fourth, when you're talking to just run-of-the-mill atheist, is uh, the objection of, well, Christians, kind of like the agnostic objection, have done evil things, Therefore, why should I believe that your approach to God is any better than the other quote-unquote groups that believe their approaches to God make them superior and yet show that they're actually inferior, that I'm a more moral person, and you can even grant that. I'm a more moral person than most Christians. So what do I gain by subscribing to your belief system if I'm a better person than your God supposedly can make people as a result of fellowship with him? C.S. Lewis had a good response to this in saying, well, be careful when you say, you know, the biggest cranks I know are Christians. You don't know how much more of a bigger fool they would be if they didn't know the Lord. That's the first faulty premise. But the second issue with that is you're focusing on the follower, not the followee. If a horrible follower is still following a good cause, that doesn't make the cause any less good. It makes the follower bad. Categories. The fifth, and this is probably going to be the most common, is just the social association with atheism as the intelligent position, the right position, that because I have more familiarity among atheists and more reasons to trust atheists, Mm. which is faith, by the way, that I have more reason to believe their claims than yours. It's a social status, not necessarily an intellectual one. And this is also the foundation of the anti-theist position, just blatant hatred of anything that has God associated with it in any way but negative. That 
leave them alone. There's no sense talking to them. But if you can deal with the run-of-mill atheist, you have to think a little. You have to catch them on their assumptions. And for the agnostic, all you have to do is make the conversation about God relevant to them. But the mm-hmm. main evidences against God, and you bring this up often, are in four realms of thought. Social, moral, not necessarily political, but it can fall into the social dynamic. Tribalism, yeah, yeah. yeah, the, yeah. the association. And then, of course, just referential, experiential. I, I don't want to associate, I don't want, I can't associate, I don't like, or I just don't acknowledge any position apart from what I'm already comfortable with. And Christians can do this too. If there's atheists listening, understand I don't hold the Christian group as full of all of these intellectuals any more than an atheist ought to do the same. There are irrational Christians out there that say, well, if the King James was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me. Oh boy. The point being made, though, is that if people aren't Jesus, that doesn't prove the inexistence of Jesus. If this world shows an absence of Jesus, that doesn't prove the inexistence of Jesus. If the lives of Christians don't show Jesus, that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't in fact exist. It all has to center it around who actually was Jesus. That's what makes it relevant. That's what makes these issues come into light. He's the one who rose from the dead, so I think his words ought to be taken seriously. And then, of course, for the anti-theist, he's the one you can pray to in order to soften their hearts because they're an unassailable fortress of anger at that point. They're not going to be able to be reasoned with. It's not about evidence. So that That all being said, just a quick recap, know how to make God relevant to them socially or morally. Uh, For regular atheists, understand your Bible and be willing to call them out and look up when they level contradictory verses. Get familiar with the problem of moral and natural evil. And then, of course, when they level these objections to just saying, well, you know, my, uh, my dad's an atheist and he's smarter than you. Are you saying my dad's wrong? Dad, how would you have responded to that if you were talking to you? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, when people uh, bring up the subject of atheism, I say, yeah, I get it. I used to consider myself one. Right. And the number one reason I would say that I was an atheist was because, you know, my dad said, you know, why do things have to have a beginning or an end? Uh, you know, religion is for little old ladies and people who don't sleep well at night. You don't mm-hmm. need that sort of thing. Uh, you can get along fine just without it. And, you know, I looked at my dad I thought he was the smartest guy I ever knew. So, uh, and, you know, let's face it, we all sort of, you know, it's like the little thing about ducks. They imprint on the first thing they see and they just think that that's normal. You know, if it's a mama duck, they start acting like a mama duck. If it's your puppy, they'll start acting like a dog. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we imprint and uh, we all tend to think that our frame of reference is normal and people that don't share our frame of reference, well, they're weird or suspect or strange. And, you know, that was pretty much the way uh, where, where I was. You know, we didn't go to church, church-going people. A few times we went to church. I remember sitting there, and my parents would lean over, and they'd say, that guy passing the offering place, the biggest crook in town, and, you know, uncomfortable seats and uh, songs that I had no idea they were going to rhyme the next uh, line and, and all of this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it just seemed like a religious country club to me. It just seemed very, very irrelevant. Uh, but the main reason was because of, you know, my family. Uh, because of my dad in particular, and uh, looking up and respecting him. And and so a lot of people will buy into that idea, and they don't really stop to think, I never stopped to think, what an extreme point of view I was presenting to the world. 
you know, it seemed like the point of view of National Geographic, it seemed like the point of view of the Jacques Cousteau special, mm -hmm. it seemed like the point of view of everything we were learning in, in science and school and all of this, but uh, it's a really extreme point of view to say there is no God, Yeah. which raises the question, how do you know that? Yep. Do you have all knowledge of all things in the universe and beyond? Well, the average person is going to say, well, no, and well, how much do you have? Well, maybe 1%. How do you know in that other 99% there's a God out there? Right. So most people, uh, you know, when you take an atheistic position, uh, it's an extreme position and it's usually loaded, backloaded with either family loyalty. You're, like you said, Sean, you're telling me that, uh, you know, my family was wrong. You're saying that my dad was a moron or something like that. Yeah. And that's how you process. A lot of cults operate in that same way. Mm. Uh, you know, the other thing that I think fires people up uh, about atheism is they've got something morally going on in their life that makes them wish there was no God. Because if there is a God, they'll be held accountable for it someday, yep. and who wants to face him? Yep. So, you know, there are people, and Aldous Huxley, Darwin's bulldog, they used to call him, uh, openly admitted that uh, his embrace of Darwinism and his atheism gave him complete liberty to do anything he wanted sexually. Mm. That's what he said, wow. uh, and I think he was honest. Yep. But, you know, I think most people you run into profess to be an atheist, and Sean, I think you're right. There's some that are atheists because that's the, the school of fish they swim in. Uh, you know, if they're not an atheist, it could cost them if, say, they're in academia or some area of government or right. something like that, and everybody else is. Uh, I, I get that, but uh, you know, one of the, the the most common reasons for taking an extreme mm. position, and when I say extreme, it's not only you have to insist that you have all knowledge of all things in the universe to be an atheist. Uh, most atheists are anti-theists. They're just like, no, there can't be a god. Uh, you know, when you take a position like that, which requires you to believe right that nothing created everything now nothing is nothing right? <laughs> yeah. um, it's no thing yeah. it has no matter it has no mass it has no energy but if there is no god nothing ultimately created everything yeah. and uh, that's an extreme position it's not a very rational position when you stop and think about it but why does somebody take a position like this well one of the most interesting insights to me was uh, dealing with a physical therapist I had after I blew out my knee my freshman year in college. Uh, you know, I wanted to come back and run track the next year, and so, uh, you know, we went after it. And uh, man, I'll tell you, physical therapy is tough stuff. Yeah. Uh, only legalized form of torture, I think we still have here, at least on the books in the yeah. United States. Uh, and and so, you know, we'd be doing these things, and you know, obviously, after a while, we'd get in conversation. They found out I was a Christian, and man, he'd just get angry, and he'd ask me this question and that question, and just you know, and there was just this kind of steam that would come out of his ears when the subject of God came up. And I finally just said to him, you know, uh, every time we talk about God, you really seem to get bent out of shape. You seem to really get angry. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think it was maybe the Lord that gave me the wisdom to ask this. I said, has there ever been somebody in your life who's a Christian that, like? really stuck it to you right and he looked like he'd seen a ghost he goes well uh i came from a very religious home mm. in fact it was so religious my mom insisted that we go to church every sunday and i'm kind of rolling my eyes like oh wow the horror uh but he goes no you don't understand she was adamant about it i hated going to church 
And so as a little kid, I figured out something. I could sneak out my window at five in the morning and run away and go play with my friends and then come back after church was over. So I didn't have to go to church. And I, you know, it's kind of cute, little leave it to beaverish, you know? Yeah. And, and he just looked at me, he shook his head, he says, no, my mom put an end to that. And I said, what do you mean? I said, she would tie me up in bed every night on Saturday so I couldn't sneak out. Oh so I gosh. had to go to church. Wow. And she, he goes, if that's what your God's all about, I don't want to have anything to do with yeah, it. Yeah, don't blame him. And I looked at him, I said, man, if that was what God was all about, I wouldn't want to have anything to do with him. Yeah. But that's not what Jesus is all about. Right. And it's just so hard to sometimes get over that hill. But until you get down to that particular issue, uh, don't you think, Sean, the, the, the real emotional issue, the thing that's, uh, that's really causing the cauldron to bubble, you're not going to get very far, are you? Yeah, and again, like I said, I'm not necessarily called the atheists, but they are hardly original. If you have any objections that you hear from them that are of this stripe, but you want to make sure that you answer it effectively or meaningly, hey, even send them our way. Understand we won't suffer fools gladly, but we'll at least accept sincere Bible questions just like we would from a Christian or even a Muslim. So note that they're human beings made in the image and likeness of God. They're in need of salvation like we all are, but they're bringing a lot of assumptions. And if you learn to spot them, you'll do just fine. Mm. Yeah. Very awesome. good. Great stuff. Well, we're at the end of our show today. We um, It's Wednesday evening. We have a service here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. So in 30 minutes, we'll be going live again. Book of Ezekiel. Yeah, we're going to wrestle with God's wrath tonight. Oh, fun. Why, Come on down. Why, <laughs> why is God a God of wrath? And, wow. and how do we deal with that? think the answers will surprise you. Whoa, what a great topic. So yeah. stick around for that. Well, come on down. Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson if you're in the area or if you'd like to drive a long way. <laughs> if not, we'll see you again same time, same place tomorrow. God bless you guys. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.